the thing about London is, while the buildings are awesome and interesting and fascinating, it's usually not the buildings we enjoy the most about the city. We enjoy the people. London is nothing without Londoners. And while, as I must, spend time in this podcast talking about the building of churches and institutions, it's actually in the interactions of its citizens that we get an idea about what London was like in the past. And the most wonderful thing about the era we're talking about in this episode is we start to see people stand out. Now, let me be clear. Most of the citizens who begin to stand out are those given to the running of the city, who were, by the nature of their roles and the qualifications you needed to get their roles, the city fathers. Which is a polite way to say, they're the rich dudes. Rich men who inherited their wealth, aka the 12th century Nepo babies of London, or those who made their wealth suddenly, aka the Bill Gates of 12th century London. And while we do not see anyone poor or any women in these lists, we do begin to see the faces of London's people. We see those citizens and we begin to see their actions and their deeds. But in their actions, we see something else. We see friendships. We see favours. We see nepotism. We see personal animosities, petty squabbles, the conflicts that do not command armies or cause battles, but influence their lives and by extension influence the lives of London. And over the next five years, we really get to see just how their stories impact upon the city. Hi, my name is Saul and I get to be your host and narrator to this The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of this amazing place in weekly chunks. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome. Make yourself comfortable, pull up a seat, and come enjoy a small slice of the tale of this city. But, listening all as one and taken together, this podcast currently represents a single story, all unfortunately written and narrated by me, and it currently lasts just shy of 38 hours worth of material. Now, the podcast only exists and has grown due to kind and generous contributions from the listeners. If you like this show, if you could please leave a five-star rating or a nice review, as honestly, these things actually make an impact on the algorithms that dictate a podcast's popularity and its availability to new people. If you're feeling especially generous and can afford it in these troubled times, you could always leave a contribution at the Buy Me A Coffee Fund I have going on, which I always joke and says feed my caffeine addiction, but alas, the truth is it helps with more mundane things like hosting and subscription fees. But if you can't do either of these things, well then, all you need to do, I hope, is just enjoy this episode. So let's get into it. Five years in the life of London, and these oligarchs of London, and it all culminates in a sudden twist of fortune that was going to cause London to realise that they may have just made a terrible, terrible mistake. Welcome then to chapter 63 of the story of London. The Acts of Great and Terrible Men. 
One of the side effects of the charter given to London by King Henry I was that immediately afterwards, London began to record things. London loved to keep records of its past. No, seriously. One historian I read along the way wrote this beautiful line that said that while, quote, it is common for English boroughs to treasure the charters on which their rights and liberties depend, yet no series has been preserved with more loving care than those in the Corporation of London's Record Office. So well have they been kept that even the seal, the most fragile element in any charter, is usually intact, or at least a substantial fragment has been preserved, unquote. And in these records that London began to keep, we begin to meet the men who would go on to run the city, and we also get insights into their lives and personalities. We know now that Henry I had allowed London choose its own people to be sheriff and be charged with the collection of taxes of the city. But the sheriff was a post that cost money in order to be able to hold it. How? Look, I'm just going to simplify the process for you. The yearly tax burden upon London was around £300 a year, and each sheriff paid this to the crown and then had to make that money up in order to make any profit. Now, it appears that they did things like give a £30 down payment to secure the post. But again, that would just start complicating matters to try to explain it fully. So I'm just going to simplify it just so you understand. Being sheriff is a post which cost money to be able to hold. Keep in mind, there had been men from the city who held appointments like this in the past. The Port Reeve and Stallers of London. So you've got the likes of the family of Tovey Pruder, which included Ansgar, the defender of London in 1066. You've got Osgood Clapper, Tovey Pruder's old friend, who ended up as an outlaw. And you've got the likes of Geoffrey de Mandeville, the Port Reeve, sheriff and constable of the White Tower of London and de facto head of Norman occupational forces in the city. These were men who lived in London and seemed to run London in their time. But the sheriffs from the time of the Charter of Henry were different. These were men of means, chosen by their peers, who also happened to be men of means to hold the position of sheriff. And you learn a lot about them when you look at them. I mean, look at the first four whose name appears just six years before this chapter starts in the pipe roll of 1130. You've got men like Geoffrey Busherell, who is a member of a family who flourished in London from the 1100s to around the 1450s or so. The Busherell became one of London's most respected dynasties. Now, some speculate that the family had been Italian in origin, but no evidence exists for this. And given the fact that the early Busherell men mostly had French first names, it does actually suggest they'd be Norman in origin. Next to him, you have the likes of William Lelutri, whose family, while successful, were not as long-lasting as the Busherells, and this surname or nickname pops up only a few more times in the records to come. But while some of these original four sheriffs, the likes of William de Balio, we can find little or nothing about, the final one of the four sheriffs of the pipe roll of 1130, oh, now he opens a door into some interesting gossip, because he was called Ralph son of Hearlywin, 
And to understand why Ralph, son of Heliwyn, is so interesting, is to understand both how nepotistic gaining London's top jobs were, but to grasp that even with this commune status, London was a oligarchy at best, or a urban house coat covering a smelly pair of feudal rural tradition pyjamas at worst. See, this wonderfully Norman gentleman called Hurleywyn had a bunch of sons, and one of these was called Roger, who married a woman called Ingalolda, and according to one source I found, supposedly was the joint sheriff of London back in 1125. But most other sources say it was actually just one man at the time called Robert Fitzwilliam. Now, supposedly, Roger, who may or may not have been a joint sheriff of London, died on pilgrimage round about 1130 on his way to Jerusalem. Hullerwin had a second boy called Ralph, and he's the one we saw named in the pipe rolls as Ralph, son of Hullerwin. But his brother Roger, who died on pilgrimage, had a son called Gervais. And Gervais, son of Roger, is somebody we really need to get to know. A few chapters ago, I went on about the actions and life of Renalf Flambard, the archetype of the London wide boy, the wheeler-dealer financial genius who earned King William II a fortune in his smart ways of raising cash by exploiting loopholes like crazy. So now it's time to mention another great London archetype, the man who is the template for generations of dodgy London geezers. You know the type. They're rich, flash, and while on paper they're all respectable, if you dig a little, you're fairly sure they're up to their neck in something a little bit dodgy. And that is exactly who Gervais of Cornhill was. Gervais of Cornhill is not going to be doing anything significant in the years 1136 to 1141 that stands out. But I'm mentioning him now because he actually has a role to play in the future. He was a man who grew up wealthy and powerful and held property in Essex, Suffolk and of course London. Yet there remains a constant rumour about him that he engaged in something that was supposedly forbidden at the time. Usury, giving loans to people but charging interest on those loans. This was supposedly sinful behaviour, so sinful that all Christians were banned from doing this, and it was identified with the Jewish community, who European traditions had kind of banned them from doing anything else apart from becoming usurers. It is suggested, however, that Gervais of Cornhill made quiet loans to people on the side and charged interest, using social pressure or maybe even physical intimidation to enforce that interest and prevent his customers from reporting him. Or in other words, Gervais of Cornhill sounds like a high-class loan shark. And he was high-class. His family were of Norman stock, to be sure, but he married an English lass called Agnes, whose family were rich Londoners, especially rich Londoners, and that ties into something I said earlier. You know I said the most records say the Sheriff of London in 1125 was a guy called Richard Fitzwilliam? Well, that guy changed his surname to Off Cornhill, 
and Agnes was his daughter, and Gervais adopted his wife's father's surname, and hence we call him Gervais of Cornhill. But it also shows just how close the nepotistic ties that united all these men, these sheriffs of London, actually were. And if you want a measure of how respectable our little high-class loan shark became, take on board that in the years to come, Gervais was to be Sheriff of London twice, Sheriff of Kent, the Sheriff of Surrey, and during King Stephen's reign was a justice in London. There's a lot to say that he was to all the world very respectable, but scratch below the surface. And yeah, there's something not right here. I will admit, however, I could be doing this guy a disservice. And I have to say that one of the reasons Gervais has gotten such bad press is that he did not get on with another resident of London, one who became very famous. And right now, in 1136, he's just furthering his education over in Paris. And that man is Thomas Beckett. And to understand why Gervais of Cornhill and Thomas Beckett were to clearly dislike each other as much as they did, we need to talk about another big man of London, this time an alderman, the father of Thomas Beckett, Gilbert Beckett. Gilbert, as I covered in a previous chapter, was an emigre to London born to well-to-do Norman stock from Rouen, who had come to the city where he began making his money, it appears as a mercer, but he had soon branched out into dealing with city rents and property management. That's right, in the 12th century as in the 21st century. If you want to make serious money in London, get into property. Gilbert had become quite rich at this, and his wealth allowed him to become an alderman, and other sources claim he was very well respected in this era for how well he did it. We do not know exactly when he held it though, and we do know he wouldn't have held it after 1133, when the Pentecost fire broke out. As I covered a couple of chapters ago, I for one do not subscribe to the claim that the Pentecost fire that destroyed most of London started in the home of Gilbert Beckett. But given he was a major landlord, I do remain open to the possibility that maybe it started in one of the homes he owned, perhaps. Hmm? Whatever is the case, We suspect the Pentecost fire, and with it the destruction of so many houses of London in this age before insurance, had reduced the Beckets' fortunes terribly. Gilbert's wealth came remarkably close to bankruptcy. And this is where we get to talk about Gervais of Cornhill. Based on the sly insinuation of money lending and usury made towards him, as well as the personal animosity between Gilbert's son and Gervais, one could suggest that perhaps the cause of this row was simply that as Gilbert Beckett fell upon leaner times, it was Gervais who may have offered a loan to keep Gilbert's head above water, with the added private caveat that interest would be charged upon the amount. An act of usury that would have stuck in young Thomas's craw, perhaps. Who can ever like your father's loan shark, after all? And that would have meant that for the likes of Gervais of Cornhill, Thomas Beckett would be a reminder, perhaps, of his earlier days, before he had made himself all respectable-like and held roles such as sheriff and justicar. 
and he's not keeping his gob shut about it, threatening to bring up stuff he should know better than not to mention. Yeah, I can see how both men would have disliked each other. We know Thomas clearly did, because his biographers are where we get the insinuations about Gervais of Cornhill from. Thomas clearly letting it be known to his confessors what he thought of Gervais. And as for Gervais, well, when he was Sheriff of Kent, he was part of a group of men who clearly tried to keep Thomas Beckett in exile. I'd say the animosity between the two was real and visceral. And what makes it more intriguing to me was that on paper, the two men were so similar. Both grew up in the same city. Both had fathers and family who were big men in their own way. One who held the post of sheriff or alderman. And both would go on to become useful servants of the king. We know Thomas Beckett saw himself as a Londoner as a measure of his identity, due to the fact that he liked to refer to himself as Thomas of London for most of his adult life. And Gervais displays the same mentality, it seems, because while he had roles elsewhere, his estates uh, were spread out, he mostly focused on London. I mean, he took his father-in-law's surname off Cornhill. And it seems that his city townhouse there may have been the heart of all his later endeavours. He saw himself as a man of London also. Now, I must alert you, dear listener, to the fact that this could be nothing more than romanticism on my part. Looking at the scant fragments of evidence we do have and seeing patterns that do not exist. And that maybe the relationship between the passionate technocrat Thomas of London, child of West Seep and Ironmongers Row, who grew up on the western side of the city, and Gervais, based over in his grand house in Cornhill, a peer and fellow Londoner, based towards the east end of the city, was not built upon some narrative story of loan-sharking old Gilbert Beckett in his time of need. Alas, this is only speculation on my part. Thomas Beckett, however, does enter London's story during the period we are covering. As he returned from Paris and around 1140, young Thomas got a job with a family friend. Gilbert, as a former alderman and big man of London, had once had business dealings with another big man of London called Osborne Houtiniers, better known by his clearly London nickname Osborne Eightpence. Now, Osborne Eightpence, you see, wasn't just a big man of London. He was the big man of London. And in the era 1134 to 1141, so through the entire process of London picking Stephen of Bois to become the king and right through the events of this episode, he was formerly the Sheriff of London. And Thomas Beckett gained his first experience of royal administration working as the Sheriff of London's clerk. It was to be the start of a long road of learning such skills in this field that was to raise him to the highest peak in the land. But during the early reign of King Stephen of England, we have the records of these few sheriffs and justices of London at the time. So as well as Osborne Eightpiece, we've got men's like Gilbert Proudfoot, alas, not related to the proud feet of Hobbiton. We've got a man just known as John. You've got Gervais of Cornhill, you've got... Theodoric, son of Duerman, and you've got Andrew Bukinti, who I mentioned last chapter. And as well as them, we've got a couple of other names who circle around these ranks and circles. Uh, a man called William Martel, and a familiar name, Geoffrey de Mandeville. 
Andrew Bikinti was a member of another powerful London dynasty, with two more Bikintis going on to become sheriffs later this century, both of whom were boringly named John. And Andrew's son actually appears alongside uh, the signature of Gervais of Cornhill in the deeds of a man called William Cade, who happened to be a moneylender. Andrew Bikinti, as well as overseeing the port soaking issue, Alongside the new king, as we covered last chapter, is recorded to having witnessed several city deeds in the 1120s and 1130s. But it is looking at William Martell, who became the king's chamberlain eventually, and Justice of London during part of this era, we get a wonderful little insight into the kind of issues facing these great men of London. A single court case that shows how much these great men cared about their lives and how annoyed they could get at each other. It's an argument about fishing. <laughs> Crucially, it's not about the modern-day art of angling, but rather actual industrial fishing along the riverways in and around the River Thames in this era. The, the use of large fish nets or fish weirs to catch a large amount of fish. So the story begins around 1135 or 1136, I think. A man called John Bellet had asked permission of the then justice of the city, William Martell, to build a weir on or near the Thames to catch lots of fish. William Martell granted him permission. Immediately afterwards, the constable of Baynard's Castle, the Tower of London's opposite number on the west side of the city, he objected. He said that the current lord of Baynard's castle, a man called Roberts Fitz Richard, had authority over all the fishing rights from Baynard's castle and down the Thames for quite some distance. William Martell, I believe, contested this claim, and in response, Robert Fitz Richard then gathered, quote, a council of the whole of England, unquote, together at St. Paul's Cathedral to judge the merits of his claim. As Lord of Baynard's Castle, he demanded his right to control the fishing on the river. His case was slightly made more confusing when the Lord of the nearby Montefinche Castle then also made the same claim, saying he owned the right. But ultimately the result was, it was ruled that, quote, the Lord of Castle Baynard's shall have the lordship of the water as royal standard bearer and proctor of the whole city, even to the bridge at Staines, unquote. Which meant ultimately the case was decided against William Martell as the Justice for London. So, that was it. Case closed, right? No. A whole bunch of the oligarchs of London uh, got very upset at this. King Stephen seems to have been upset at this. And they then sued Robert Fitzrichard on behalf of John Bellet, presumably for loss of earnings having built this fish weir. And there was such a serious countersuit that Robert Fitzrichard seems to have decided to settle out of court. And he did so by maintaining... He still is Lord of the River, but he will appoint John Bellet as the Warden of the Waters under his authority, which was a nice way of saving face. Afterwards, by the way, when John Bellet died, 
Several of these oligarchs went after the title of Warden of the River, including Gervais of Cornhill, then Sheriff of Surrey. But the Warden role passed to John Bellet's son, Robert Bellet, and he held it until one day in the future King Henry II is going to take it off him, quote, on account of a sparrowhawk, which he refused to give to the king, unquote. So as you can see, these oligarchs were interesting chaps. But this brings us to the last of the great men of London during this era uh, and this part of King Stephen's reign, Geoffrey de Mandeville the Second. As I've described in previous chapters, London at this time had three castles dominating its skyline. To the west, you had Baynard's Castle, once property of the Baron Ralph Baynard, which had now passed into the mighty Clare dynasty and it was to remain in the family from now until the 13th century, and the current member of the Clare dynasty who ran it was Robert Fitzrichard. Behind it was Montefitcher Castle, which was the possession of the Montefitcher dynasty, and was located to the north of Baynard. And then, over to the east of the city, there lay the White Tower of London. Nominally a royal possession, but there was an issue with the family of the de Mandevilles. The Tower of London's role was originally to provide the king with a measure of control over the city beneath it, and also to be the focus of London's defences in the event of an attack. It had been built and overseen by Geoffrey de Mandeville, whose role in London's politics I covered in several previous chapters of the story. By 1100 and 1101, it was in the hands of Geoffrey's son, William de Mandeville, and there was this impression that the position of constable was a hereditary position. But let me make it clear, there is no way William the Conqueror or William Rufus would have granted such a brilliant piece of real estate to pass on to any other dynasty but their own. And if you could remember, William de Mandeville's great claim to fame was Renalf Flambard escaped the tower in rather dubious circumstances while he was constable. As I covered back in chapter 57, Henry I responded by punishing William de Mandeville, seizing a load of his lands that belonged to the dynasty and stripping him off the position of constable of the Tower of London. At some point, and we're not sure exactly when, he was replaced by Othwer Fitzcount, the son of Earl Hugh of Chester. Othwer Fitzcount had then married into the sum of the lands that had been seized from the de Mandeville dynasty. And there is a small case to be made that while Henry I had removed the de Mandevilles from their old position, the lands he'd seized now seemed to be attached to the position of constable. I don't know for sure. What I do know is that Othwer Fitzcount had unfortunately been one of the passengers on the white ship. And this is what led to his sudden end as constable of the Tower of London and the elevation of someone called Tasculf de Tanny, the new constable of the Tower of London. And this then takes us up to the port soaking debate I've been going on about over the last couple of chapters. In summary, just to remind us all, the soak of the far east end of London beyond Allgate, the area known as Port Soken, had passed to Holy Trinity Priory and had led to the monks of the Priory taking over the Church of St. Bartolf without Allgate. The rector of the nearby chapel of St. Peter Ad Viniculum, which was associated with the Tower of London, then began legal action to contest the Priory's claim to the land. 
a court case that was done on behalf of the constable of the tower, who was Haskurf de Tani. Now at some point, and we do not know exactly when, Haskulf is removed from his post and Geoffrey de Mandeville II becomes constable. We're fairly sure it took place between 1135 or 36 and 1140. Now in a previous chapter I did say that the constable who had lost the case against Holy Priory had been Geoffrey de Mandeville II, but it could be that Haskalf de Tani had been the one in charge. I personally don't think so. I think based on the issues raised and the fact it was a case that relied upon ownership of the land which de Mandeville's grandfather had owned or run, either Geoffrey de Mandeville II was involved in the background or he gained the post a tad earlier in order to contest it. I think when the rector of St. Peter and Chains first raised the issue, Haskulf was in charge. And I think around 1135 or 36, it was Geoffrey de Manville II who pushed the issue and then lost the court case, which was decided upon by Andrew Bukinti as Justice of London and King Stephen. The truth is, while we can speculate about the exact when and precise dates of Geoffrey's appointment, the real question is, why the hell did Stephen give the position back to a de Mandeville, given this man's grandfather had used it to rebel against King William II and his father had used it to allow Renal Flambert escape? I think the reason that saw a de Mandeville return to the position of overlord of the Tower of London was because King Stephen needed a big, powerful and above all loyal noble in charge of a big, powerful location such as the Tower of London. Because let me make this clear, during the era of 1136 to 1140, Geoffrey de Mandeville II was King Stephen's man. And Stephen granted him the title of Earl of Essex, consolidating and restoring many of the lands de Mandeville had lost all those years ago. And he was constable of the Tower of London. Meanwhile, with all this talk of these new sheriffs and justices of London and constables of the tower, it's worth remembering that, as I've said for many chapters, there had always only been one traditional name power in London aside from the king, the bishops of the city. And how were the bishops of London responding to this rise of secular powers within their diocese? Well, actually, to be honest, they seemed to be rather caught up in interchurch politics, and London was to suddenly find itself awkwardly caught out in one of the papacy's most intricate and labyrinthine internal political arguments. So, on the 9th of August 1134, Bishop Gilbert Universalis of London died, having held the post for seven years. And there seems to have been confusion in who followed him. See, the record seems to suggest that for two years following Bishop Gilbert's death, there was no Bishop of London. The see was vacant, which by itself was quite astounding, because by all accounts, the see of London had not been vacant since the year 666. And I covered that all the way back in chapter four, the incident of this guy called Wine turning up, bribing the King of Mercia and becoming Bishop of London. So why was there no Bishop of London at this time? Well, to answer this, I'm afraid, small excursion, 
but it's about great and powerful men, and it's a heck of a story. And we need to move away from London for a while and look at events taking place over in Italy. But don't worry, there is a short excursion to Bury St. Edmunds. You see, over in Bury St. Edmunds, there was an abbey. And in the abbey, there was an abbot called Anselm. Now, this Anselm had been born and raised in Italy from a family of nobles. And his mother was called Richera. And she was the baby sister of a figure who I've not mentioned in a while, but I had lots of fun being sarcastic towards him, St. Anselm, the former Archbishop of Canterbury and patron saint of Karens. Anselm, the one we're talking about, Abbot Anselm, decided to follow his uncle into a clerical career and not only benefited from his uncle being the Archbishop of Canterbury, he also seems to have emulated him by seeking high position. Now, simplifying a lot of nepotistic insider dealing, Anselm the nephew eventually became elected the abbot of the Benedictine Monastery of St. Saba, which is located in the city of Rome. This was a wonderful high-profile position. And not only was Anselm now an abbot, he was an abbot right in the heart of the papacy, getting to know all kinds of important churchmen in Rome, and by 1114 he was well-established and was now known as Anselm of St. Saba. Now, in 1115, Anselm St. Saba's contacts in Rome worked out to his benefit. and He got appointed to be a papal legate to England, where he travelled to from about 1115 to 1119. And somewhere along the way, he decided to cash in on his famous uncle's footsteps and relocate here permanently. And it was decided he wanted a cushy job. Now, over in Bury St. Edmunds, round about 1119, after the death of one Abbot Baldwin, there'd been a period of unsettlement as three abbots came and went, and Anselm of St. Saba just saw the opportunity and got himself a nice plum abbot's position in Bury St. Edmunds. The accusation that his rise in power to this role was due to nepotism should be taken seriously, as it appears almost every post he ever got, he got via nepotism. Anyway, while we do not know formally the exact circumstances that seem to take place over this era we're talking about, I personally reckon that the most likely sequence of events are as follows. Bishop Gilbert of London dies. Ah, oh, everyone's sad. Who replaces him? No one is sure because there's some problems going on in the church. And we'll be back to that in a bit. But meanwhile, while that's going on, Henry I dies in Normandy. All hell breaks loose. Stephen of Bois turns up and takes the throne. He is now kingdom. And at this point, Anselm of St. Saba seems to make his move. But chances are he could have started to make his move a little earlier. Abbot Anselm, you see, writes to someone he no doubt knew back in the day, a man called Pietro Pierleoni. The Pierleoni were an old Roman family, rich and aristocratic, and Pietro had become a leading cleric in Rome around the time Abbot Anselm had been hanging around the city, and eventually Pietro had become a cardinal. 
anyway. Back in 1130, Pope Heronius II was dying, and the cardinals all supposedly placed the power to elect a successor into the hands of the Pope's Chancellor, a Frenchman called Hamerick. Hamerick had picked a body of eight cardinals, and they decided to give the job to another high-born Roman citizen called Gregory Paparesi. When the Pope died on February 13th in 1130, the next day Gregory was elevated to the position of Pope, taking the name Innocent II. All good? No, because later that very day, all the other cardinals held a meeting in the Basilica of San Marco, and led by a cardinal from Portugal, they decided that Innocent II's election was pure BS, and they nominate Pietro Pierleoni. Now, Pietro wasn't just a handy-dandy cardinal, oh no, he and his family were enemies of a group called the Frangipini, and they're the cartel of Frenchmen who had supported their papal chancellor, and Pietro was able to use this to gain not just the support of the cardinals, but the entire clergy of Rome, the Roman aristocracy, and the poor of Rome, and they all agreed that this Innocent II was nothing more than a Frangipini stooge, and they rose up, and Innocent II was forced to flee, and Pietro became announced as Pope Anacletius II. Still with me? I hope so. Maybe take a drink of water, because this is papal stuff. It gets confusing. Anyway, Innocent II flees to Pisa and then took a boat to France, and around 1131 he began touring various kings of Europe, including Henry I of England, and trying to get them to agree that he was the real Pope, and saying things like, honestly, it's just so embarrassing, just this happened, or worse to that effect. And an extended period of two popes theologically battling it out now starts, and into this, along comes Abbot Anselm of St. Seba, who I think saw there was a vacancy in London, and wrote to his old friend Pietro, sorry, sorry, His Holiness Anacletius II, and basically went, hey, Pietro, my old friend, how about asking the Archbishop of Canterbury to make me Bishop of London, or words to that effect, and hey, presto, Anselm becomes Bishop of London, until 1139, because after a protracted ongoing fight, Anacletius II drops dead, and Innocent II wins the fight by default, and he moves very quickly to end this schism in the church and restore papal authority, his papal authority, and so we get his second lantern council held during Lent in 1139, wherein, to quote one historian, Innocent II instructed, quote, the council unanimously declared null and void the ordinations and decrees of Anacletius II and his fellow schismatics. The session ended with the disposition of all those bishops present who had been in any way implicated in the schism of Anacletius, even though their presence in the council showed they were by no means impenitent schismatics, unquote. And so basically, this is why Bishop Anselm of St. Saba suddenly had his election of Bishop of London quashed, and why London again had a vacancy for the See of London. I've not read a single book that says he lost his position because he was a supporter of Anacletius, or that he was appointed by Anacletius. Please note, but given his election was quashed in 1139, and the Lantern Council of 1139 went about targeting anyone associated with Anacletius, well, it makes sense, don't you think? 
and the aftermath was that London's bishopric was vacant and probably couldn't be filled because after 1138, there was a war going on. But I will get into that war in a moment. It is worth saying that London also had another important religious figure running around right now, who was actually arguably way more charismatic and important to the Londoners than their bishop, Rahiri, the prior of the ecstatic church of St. Bartholomew, the home of a spate of miraculous healing incidents which would lead to the development of St. Bart's Hospital and the man who had given London the St. Bartholomew's Fair and whose impact upon the city I've been covering over the last couple of chapters. Rahiri's prominence in London's spiritual landscape was only growing and in 1137 he was again about to do something that was to have a long-term impact upon the city. In 1137, Rahiri of St. Bart's was given the jurisdiction and mastery of the Church of St. Edmunds on Newgate Street. Nearby to this church at the time was the new headquarters of the recently arrived a few years ago Knights Templars in London, over in the suburb of Holborn. Now it appears that prior Rahiri had begun establishing links with these Templars or just gotten talking to them because of what follows. Someone, probably the Templars, pointed out that St. Edmund's Church here in London was located just beyond the Northwest Gate. And back in the holy city of Jerusalem, just beyond the Northwest Gate there, was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Prior Rahiri loved this comparison, and so he went and renamed the Church of St. Edmund's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, London. Once again, I'd be open to the accusation of romanticism in suggesting the idea for this came to Rahiri via the Templar Knights. It is worth considering that after this rededication, as the years passed, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, London, would become the church that future crusaders would assemble in before going off on their armed pilgrimage, which for me gives the idea a degree of validity. It's in the pocket, people. Only a few years later, please note, the influence of the crusader kingdoms of Outrima upon London was to increase. See, over in Clerkenwell, there'd been a nunnery dedicated to St. Mary, which had been seemingly established by a man called Jordan de Brichet in the 1140s, and as well as that, he seems to have established a priory attached to this. And I say the word seemingly, as honestly as the whole historical papers that debate the exact dates and terms of reference as to what was created over in Clerkenwell, and there's really intricate family ties with the Brichets and their in-laws, the Lacy's, and I think we've covered enough of great and powerful men. The only reason I'm telling you this story, that priory he established over here in Clerkenwell, in time that was to be granted to another knightly crusader order, the Knights of the Order of St. John, the Knights Hospitaller. In time, this would become one of the great priories of England and the national headquarters of the Knights Hospitaller. And to this day, Clerkenwell remains the headquarters of their descendants, St. John's Ambulance. And yet, as London continues on its way, with great men becoming sheriff and justice and bickering with one another over games of status and power within city walls, 
And while we see churches like St. Martin's the Less being built opposite St. Martin's Le Grand, or the church of St. Michael Le Queen being built on West Cheap and one of the Cheapside crosses placed outside it, and while Enfield Chase had a wall rilled around it, and the church of St. Mary's up in Harrow's had finally constructed their huge steeple, something else was going on. Something big, huge even. Stephen I was no longer accepted as King of England. King Henry's daughter, Matilda, had arrived. She was contesting the crown. And so, as the oligarchs of London played their games of power and status, maintaining ancient rights and making money, beyond London's ageing but still hale walls, civil war had broken out. And there was chaos, and there was anarchy. Of course, London could be forgiven for only granting this some of their attention. After all, this was the bastion of King Stephen's domain, and Stephen liked to spend his time in the Tower of London, safe behind its ferocious walls, able to be close to his allied Londoners. And so with this in mind, even with Matilda leading what sounded like an army made up of brigands more than soldiers, London felt secure and probably would not have paid much attention to the delegation of men of Lincoln, loyalists to the king, who turned up and beseeched their king to come aid them against forces loyal to Matilda. And so King Stephen rode out from London and up to Lincoln, and he got captured. And the news arrived that Matilda was now marching on London with her brigand army. And now she'd captured Stephen, that was it. It was over. No, seriously, in the game of ruling England, if you captured the king, that was checkmate. Matilda had won. And she was marching on London and demanding they surrender. And I think we can imagine the reaction of all those oligarchs of London, the great and powerful men of the commune of the city, basically looking at one another and going, oh, shit, what the hell are we going to do now? And we'll find out in the next episode of The Story of London. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And I'll see you next week. Bye. (laughs) 